tonight's scripture reading will be from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Good evening, everybody. It's always funny to me when I get up and I hear just one noise, and it is Henry going, da-da. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, it's me, buddy. <clears throat> Same one you see every day. I want to say welcome to you tonight. Thank you for being here to our members and to our guests. We have, we have several guests with us tonight. We thank you very much for being here. hope that we get to be a blessing to you tonight by, by your presence here. Um, it was kind of funny. I, I, I'm going to be totally honest with you, and I hope this doesn't come off as me being negative in any way. I really kind of thought we might have a bit of a smaller crowd tonight uh, just because of what the weather has been doing today and that holding up some people. And, um, and especially after Keith made his joke this morning about you know people having to come to church in a boat, I got a picture from the Grushons of, uh, of their daughter out in a boat in the middle of the street because it was so flooded they could not go anywhere. It was like waist deep, and that was just that was what they were stuck with. And so I thought about that and I thought, you know what, maybe that proves that Keith is smarter than... No, it doesn't. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Maybe he was smarter than I thought. No. Okay. I want to remind you, I want to remind everybody as well, tonight is the, uh, is the Youth Devo at our house after church. That is for fifth graders through high school, and everybody is welcome to come to that. Uh, everybody in that age bracket, you are welcome. Whether you're a member of this church or not, you are invited to be part of that. And uh, so we'll probably get started right around 6.30 with that at our house. Uh, just want to make sure that that invitation is open to everybody. <clears throat> When we talk about when we talk about promises, we are talking about meaningful things. Whether they are kept or not kept, we are talking about something that is meaningful. Because even if you don't keep a promise, then it means a broken promise and that has a meaning all to itself. But what about when somebody makes a big promise? When they make a big promise and you think there's no way that's possible and then they deliver on it. You know, when all the hype about a movie turns out to be true. You you hear everybody talk about how 
good it is and they promise you you're going to love it and you go in thinking it's not really my type of movie and they were right. It was everything that they promised you it would be. Or when your parents, when you were a kid and your, kid, your, your parents promised you that someday, someday they would, be, they would get you that special toy that you wanted, that you saw it in the, in the catalog or you saw it in the store and you really wanted it and you told them and they said someday we'll make that happen and you just thought, yeah, I know that you guys aren't that kind of, you're not that type of parents. You're not going to do that for me. And then guess what? Christmas morning, there it is. Or maybe a little more significant than either of those. What about... What about when somebody promises to be faithful until death do us part, and then they actually fulfill that promise for 30, 40, 50, in some extreme cases, even 70 years? What about then, when those promises are fulfilled? That's a meaningful, a meaningful promise. It's tricky in cases like that. It's tricky to promise big things. And the reason is because we're human. And whether or not we like to admit it, the fact is we have some severe limitations. We are limited by time and and by space. And just as an example of that, several of our members were not able to make it here this morning for worship because we are limited by some things about this life. Sometimes things just get out of our hands and we might have made a, a, a big promise and we just cannot deliver even even though we try with all of our might. Our finite lifespan, our physical limitations, and again, as I said, even the weather can get in the way and ruin the best of intentions and the most, the most strenuous efforts. Now that's us and promises. What I want to talk to you about tonight is out of Isaiah chapter 2. I want to talk about some of God's promises. Because when we talk about God's promises, we are talking about promises without limitations. Something that is completely foreign to us is the fact that God is not limited. When we talk about the promises of God, we're talking about something that is even more reliable than the rising of the sun. God cannot lie. And He is more powerful than any other force that we can know. And so when God says this is going to happen, nothing can get in the way. There is no way that God's promises can be thwarted and there is no time when any of God's promises has ever been broken. Ever. Period. Anywhere. It doesn't happen. When God says this is how it is, that's how it is. And that's very comforting to me. That's a very comforting idea because, because it makes it so much more, makes it so much more real when you look at the promises of God. And when you study what God has actually said He will do for His people. Or against his people in some cases. When you study what God has actually said he will do, it makes it that much more interesting, that much more exciting, and I think that much more enlightening. And so that's what I want to do. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at the at verses 2 through 5. That's our whole text for this evening uh, as we talk about some of the promises of God and what that actually means in our lives. Isaiah chapter 2. Let's read verses 2 through 5. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all nations, all the nations shall flow 
flow into it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the house, up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is one of those passages that comes, that we talk about it in terms of being a new covenant passage. If you want to, if you're a note taker and you like cross references and that sort of thing, just kind of put in your margins somewhere Jeremiah chapter 31. Because a lot of the same kind of promises are made there. As God talks about putting His law into our hearts and changing the nature of His relationship with us. That's what He's talking about here in Isaiah chapter 2 as well. So let me just show you some interesting things about this passage in general. I'm just going to highlight a few things in the text itself as we go on, as we go through and talk about some of God's promises tonight. In verse 2, in verse 2, which is the verse you see there on the screen, you see talking about Jerusalem, the house of the Lord. In verse 1, matter of fact, he's already referenced that. This is what he saw. This is what Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. But really, we talk about Jerusalem and we think of a city. We're really dealing with a bigger concept than that. We're dealing with the concept of Zion. It is the mountain of the house of the Lord. And that phrase is one that's used in the Old Testament quite a bit to talk about the highest part of the city of Jerusalem. It's the highest point on the mountain that Jerusalem was built on top of. And it's kind of one of the highest points around that area. That's why anytime you read about people going up to Jerusalem, they are actually going up to Jerusalem. From any direction on the map, it's always headed up into the presence of God. It's just kind of interesting that that's one of the highest points around. It's where the temple of Solomon sits, which is covered in gold. Do you think it was conspicuous? I mean, if you go through that area, if you just kind of happen down the highway that passes Jerusalem, do you think you're going to notice the temple? Do you think you're going to notice the highest point in the area? Do you think you're going to notice this gold building that catches the sun and scatters it all over the valley below? Yeah. It's kind of an important thing. It's kind of a big deal in that area. And yet, with even as conspicuous as it is, Isaiah's message is that God's presence is going to make it even more so. That when God dwells there, when His law goes forth from Jerusalem, it will be elevated beyond the highest point in the area. That the Temple Mount, the highest point, because of the presence of God, will be exalted above all the hills, and yea, even so it does not touch the ground. To say that the Temple Mount, this is a quote from Albert Barnes' commentary, to say that the Temple Mount should be elevated higher than all the other hills or the mountains means that the worship of the true God would become an object so conspicuous as to be seen by all nations and so conspicuous that people from all nations would forsake their other places of worship, their other objects of worship, and be attracted by the glory of the worship of Yahweh, the true God. 
that's his picture here. It's just kind of, a, it's a very cool picture to me. And I know that word is so trite and overused, but, but it is. It's an exciting picture to see that God is talking about himself and his presence being so high and elevated that you can see it from across the earth. That it is above the clouds, that it's above all the other mountains, and that people will leave behind their old way of worshiping and their old gods to worship the one true and living God. Now yes, he's talking here about the highest point of Jerusalem, but let's just be honest, he's talking about something bigger than that. When you talk about Zion in the Scriptures, it's an idea that can be used for the city itself, for the mountain itself, but it's also an idea that's used to talk about the church. And it's also an idea that's used to talk about heaven in the ultimate sense. And so he says, basically, the church is going to become so important that it will be above and beyond any other earthly kingdom. It will be above and beyond all the other hills. It is that important. It is that, that magnificent because of the presence of God Himself. And so he says that it will be exalted above all the hills. And I want to show you this as well, even before we move away from verse 2, because we're going to cover all of this section. But let me show you this in verse 2. He says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That word in the original language has a kind of a sense of permanence about it. And so when he says it's going to be established there, it's basically it's going to be solidified there. It's going to be built there in a way that it never changes and it never dies and it never it is never done away with it will never be undone and that's just a cool picture as well God says I'm building this kingdom I'm building my church and I'm promising to build a group of my people where from all the nations they come to me and they are elevated in my presence above all the hills and it cannot be undone now let me give a little word of warning here before we move away from verse 2 and it is this don't get hung up on the phrase, the latter days or the last days in that verse, right? That's how it starts. Take a look at it again there. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, etc., etc. I just want to encourage you, don't get caught up on that. Basically what it means is it will happen later. It's going to happen after now. It's coming down the road. Eventually, this is the sort of thing that will happen. It's more about, it's more about a time when some big things have changed. And when we talk about things that have changed, we talked about in Ecclesiastes this morning, not a whole lot changes in this life, but God coming in the flesh is kind of a big change. God establishing His church as a global kingdom, that's kind of a big change. And so when Isaiah sees that in the latter days. He's talking about a time after this big change has been accomplished. And one of the other things that he says is going to happen in all of that is that all nations are going to come into the city of Zion, into this temple mount where the presence of God is. I want you to just think for a minute, very honestly, comes. I mean, that sounds very natural to us. We're kind of used to this passage. I think most of us have heard it at some point. But to Isaiah's readers, was that a normal idea? No, not at all. Why would all nations be coming to Zion? Only one nation comes to Zion. That's the Jews. That's the Hebrews. That's God's chosen people. And so to Isaiah's readers, they hear that all nations shall flow into it. And what is their thought process going to be? Oh, that's going to defile the temple. 
That's going to defile the city of God. That's not the way that this is supposed to, that this is supposed to work. And yet, that's exactly what God is promising. That all these people will come and that they will worship Him and that that will be what He, what He wants. It's just kind of interesting to me as well. We talked at the very beginning. The promises of God are never broken. They never fail. And as you look at this promise that all these nations shall flow into God's presence. They shall flow into Zion, into His church. Isn't that what happened in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 2, the gospel is taught to whom? It's taught to the Jews. In Acts chapter uh, 6, we, we find out that there are some Hellenistic Jews that are involved in this now teaching of the gospel. There are some, uh, there's some Greek Jews in there as well. In Acts chapter 10, we find out that the Gentiles are now receiving the gospel. And then through the rest of the book, we find out the whole world is eligible now to hear the gospel. And so God talks in Isaiah that all these nations shall flow into His presence because of the law going forth from Zion... And that's exactly what happens. And you've got to love the language, too, that all these nations shall flow into it. It's kind of like when there's a, a big conference, you know, a big political rally or, a, or, or something like that, and people just converge on a city from all different directions. They, the interstates just light up as they all go into that one city where the conference is going to be held. And that's kind of the idea here. It's almost like rivers flowing together all into one pool in the presence of God. All these people are going to come together and they are going to worship Him and they are going to be in His presence. Like the Mississippi River is joined by so many others as it flows south. That's the idea here. It all flows into one place. And it's so interesting to me too because He doesn't talk about all these different nations and then get to the end and say, and they will be a multicultural, multifaceted, different sort of kingdom. He says, no, no, no. They will be a kingdom that is above any of that. They will be a kingdom that is above the hills and doesn't need any of those distinctions. And you look at all that and you go, wow, that's a lot out of just verse 2. Yeah, it is. But here's the point that I want to make in all of it. What I want to show you about these people is that they have a desire to learn God. These people who are flowing into Zion, into the presence of God, these people have a desire to learn about God. He does not just talk, listen very carefully, in God's promises of His new kingdom, He does not just talk about crowns and wings and the different kinds of church family support that come by being part of it. He doesn't talk about great youth activities. He doesn't just talk about great worship music or financial assistance. He doesn't talk about all the ideas of self-improvement are preached in so many different pulpits. What does he talk about? He talks about people coming into the presence of God because they want to know Jehovah. The point of this kingdom that he's been talking about. The point of the kingdom that is far beyond the tops of the mountains is its king. It's about the king of this kingdom. And by the way, if you were looking for a good opportunity to say amen tonight, that was it. It's a time, this is about God. It's a kingdom that is meant to pull people out of the wilderness, out of the dark valleys down below the mountains and up into the light at the tops of the mountains and then elevate them even beyond that to the highest of the mountains where no cloud is high enough to block the light of the Almighty God. I have to tell you, one of the most amazing experiences of my life happened just this past week watching the sunrise from the top of one of the mountains in Hawaii. And I don't know how many of you have ever been able to do that, but it's just an amazing 
amazing place. The mountain is 10,000 feet high and the clouds rest at about 6,000 feet. And so in the morning as you get up there, the sun comes up above the clouds and you just feel like you've entered a completely different world because you've never never seen anything like it. I've seen sunrises, I've seen sunsets before and they're all kind of the same. But that one was not the same. It was a totally otherworldly experience because it is an elevated experience. It's been brought up to a brand new level. And when we come into this kingdom, we come into the presence of eternal light in God's presence Himself. Let me take a minute then in talking about all of this from this passage to kind of... I don't, even, I don't even like this phrase as much, but, but let me kill a sacred cow here for just a minute. Uh, when we look at this passage, I think one of the mistakes that we make is to think that this is talking about literal nations. And, and one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is that thinking one day, all different nations, the U.S. is just going to give up and all move to Israel. And Russia is going to give up and all move to Israel. And China is going to give up and all move to Israel. And God is going to reign from a throne in Jerusalem. Listen, that's not what this passage is saying. That's not at all what this passage is talking about. What this is talking about is about people that come into the presence of God. This is about God's church. This is about the people that are seeking to know Him and that are willing to let Him make them whole. And when you look at it in those terms, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that all nations would flow into this. And why do they want to do that? We says here, they say here, we will go into the presence of God that He may teach us His ways. I find it fascinating in this passage when the people speak, do they talk about themselves? Right? You got it there on the screen. Do the people really talk about themselves very much? No, they are, they are truly seeking God. They are not just seeking what comes from being in God. They're not just seeking blessings for themselves. They are seeking God Himself. And I think it's a beautiful picture that what you have here is God's people are not just constrained by His authority. Right? We talk about the authority of God and the fact that He has the power to tell us what to do. And we think, well, that sounds a little bit like captivity. I mean, you're kind of being bossed around a little bit. But that's not the way that people talk about it in this passage is it they come and they seek the authority of God they're not resenting it they're not being chained down they see it as freedom they see it as an opportunity to be to be holy because he is holy and so when he talks about the law he's not talking about something that will chain them down so that they'll want to be free, they'll want to get free of him he's talking about something that will set them free And he says, that law will go forth from Zion. That law will go out of Jerusalem and it will spread to all the earth. And in fact, that's exactly what happens throughout the book of Acts. God's promise again comes true in full force. All of that said, I want to make an observation about a couple of things, a couple of different phrases that are used here. You'll see it here in verse 3. Many peoples shall come into the presence of God. We saw in verse 2 where he talks about all the nations are flowing into, are flowing into the presence of God. In verse 4 it says, He shall judge between the nations, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation. What happens in this passage, and this may be at least in, in our time and in our culture, maybe even in our recent culture, this may be the thing of greatest impact to me. 
when all these different nations come into the presence of God, when they flow into Zion, do they talk anymore about the nations they came from? Read the passage again. Look at your Bible there. When they come into the presence of God, does the passage talk any more about the nations that they came from? doesn't say where they were. doesn't say when all of this happened. It's just kind of interesting to me. When they come into the presence of God, we don't need to know anything else about their national identity. When they come into the presence of God, we don't need to know anything at all about how about where they came from. And, and I love that because what this is telling me is that God was promising all the way back in the days of Isaiah that He was going to thoroughly destroy the possibility of division. God was going to thoroughly do away with the possibility of division for those who are in Him. There is no prejudice based on your birthplace or your skin color or your economic level or your last name, that none of that has anything, any bearing in this passage. It is all done away with because God said, all nations shall come to me and then they're defined by me. They don't need to be defined by where they came from before that. All that matters is this exalted king with its greatly exalted, great, excuse me, this exalted kingdom with its greatly exalted king. And again, you can see that further emphasized in verse 4. He says there, they will need no weapons. They will beat their their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They don't need weapons anymore. They are working on this in terms of peacetime. And so he says, you know what? This passage is not about this passage is not about peace between Russia and the Ukraine or between the U.S. and the U.K. It is much more spiritual than that. This is above the hills. This is about peace among the people of God. And I'll tell you two things that that teaches me. Number one is that God knows what He's doing. There has never been a human organization that has been able to accomplish peace between everybody. Never. But if God's church is allowed to function in the way that He designed it, would it do that? Yep. If God's church is designed to, is allowed to function in the way that He designed it, it could bring peace between all different kinds of people. And there is no human substitute for that. There is nothing else that could do that. The other thing that that tells me, that this tells me from this passage, is that God intends for His people to be at peace. And that's a convicting thing for me. Um, as long as I can remember, whenever somebody talks about unity or somebody talks about peace or somebody talks about harmony amongst Christians, almost inevitably it's said, well, as long as there are people, there are going to be problems. Is that biblical? I know it might be what our experience tells us, but is it biblical? And the answer has to be no. No. Because God intends for us to live at peace with each other. He does not intend for us to get together and have problems. That might happen, but He intends for us to overcome that by the grace that He gives us through Jesus Christ. And it's just amazing to me to see how much God wants that to happen. He puts it, on, he puts it in the same passages where He talks about sending His Son to save us. He says, I will send My Son to save you and I want you to be unified. I want you to work together. I want you to be at peace. 
Now one of the ways that he's going to do that, as you see here highlighted on the screen, is that he is going to judge the nations. They come to him. We go to him. We see him as our king. We don't have to fight about national and territorial and cultural issues anymore because God has settled all the disputes. God is the ultimate judge. It is not a matter of how I judge you based on whether you are poor or wealthy, based on whether you are scholarly or uneducated, based on whether you are foreign or domestic. None of that matters because God is the judge. And He will judge righteously. And that tells us that He intends to bring us peace. Again, this idea of plowshares and pruning hooks, one of the most beautiful images in all of the Old Testament. The plowshare is, well, it's basically what it sounds like. It's a big metal wedge that's attached to that's attached to a wooden frame and it's used to break up the ground. The pruning hook we might call a scythe or a, you know, just a big hook on the end of a stick and you swing it to harvest grain. The point is in both the images that God is turning us from a time of war to a time of peace. From an attitude of fighting with other people to a time of agreeing because we are in Him. Why does He bring that up now? What does it have to do with this passage? Well, He says they're coming from different nations and different nations tend to fight but once they're in God it doesn't matter they're not going to fight anymore because they are going to live in peace in in his presence I'm encouraged and comforted by the fact that kind of what you see here is God simplifying things God's kind of removing removing distractions so that his people can have peace and so he says you're not going to be fighting anymore I just want you to serve I just want you to work the image is I just want you to work your farm in quietness (laughs) you don't need to fight it's just going to be a simpler life now that you are in me and I'm taking care of things he says there are no nations anymore you're just going to be in the presence of God you are going to be under one king and you don't have to fight about all these different things anymore because it is just one law, one king, one kingdom. It's simple that way. There's no earth and no uh, there's no earth to fight over because we're above that now. We're exalted above the hills. That that much stuff doesn't matter anymore. There's no politics anymore. Just come to God and let him be the king. Matter of fact, there are no judges anymore, no courts anymore because there is again one law from Zion, one judge for that law. And I know that it all kind of sounds a little bit utopian and you go, yeah, but it'll never be that easy. Listen, if we have faith in God, then it can be that easy because that's what He promised. And He does not break His promises. I think sometimes we look at the plan of God and we think, well, how can we do that better, faster, or smarter than God did it? Listen, that's a bad idea through and through. We just need to trust in God that that He... That he has the right way to do things. And so, kind of wrapping all of this up, look at verse 5 with me. Look at verse 5 in this passage. This is the invitation. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. We are the house of Jacob brothers and sisters. We are the spiritual Israel. We are God's chosen people today. And His invitation to walk in the light is an invitation for us to live 
in His presence. To live in Him. To live for Him. To live because of Him. It is an invitation to enjoy simplicity and peace. It is an invitation to seek Him as the judge and as the King. It is an invitation not to judge other nations and other people amongst our ranks, but to all be one in Jesus Christ. It is an invitation to seek His authority. To want to know the ways of God and to live in those. It is an invitation to live, as He says, in the light. And living in the light means that we can see when the darkness overcomes everybody else. I didn't even do this on purpose, but I'm so glad that our brother started off tonight singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. My favorite line in that song is, God is still holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee. And though the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see, we still see that God is holy, that He is light, and that in Him is no darkness at all. And so when we walk in the light as He is in the light, we find ourselves at peace. We are safe in the way that we walk because we can see what is going on. You ever seen somebody... You ever seen... The way that that, uh, somebody walks who cannot see, somebody that's totally blind, how do they walk? They have to have some other assistance, some other way to know their way around. We need some sort of input. We need enlightenment. There's the word light right in the middle of that. And so when He invites us to walk in His light, it's the idea of walking in safety and in peace and in glory. And so my invitation for you tonight is the same as Isaiah's. You are the house of Jacob. Would you walk in the light? Are you, are, are you just kind of waiting for somebody to show you that light or are you actively seeking it? Are you, are you just kind of waiting to see if things work out so that you can be at peace with other people? Are you actively trying to be peaceable as Christ was with us? I just hope to encourage you with those things. These promises of God about His church are are comforting, but they're also convicting. There's a lot that we have to do with this. Uh, inherent Inherent within the invitation to walk in the light is the warning to get out of the darkness. You ever seen somebody just endlessly fumble with their smartphone or uh, with, you know, like a car seat or something like that? And you just go, okay, can I, can I please help you with that? <laughs> can I please help you with that? What's the problem? They don't understand. They're not enlightened to that sort of thing. How often do we look at people fumbling in the darkness of this life and we go, all right, you're on your own. When in reality we could say, hey, can I help you? Can I help you with that? Can I help you to walk in the light with me? That's what we talked about this morning, about bringing people to Him. And I hope that that's one of the messages that we take away from this passage in Isaiah tonight. Wherever you're at this evening spiritually, if you want to be part of this kingdom that is exalted above the hills, if you want to be part of the kingdom that falls down in the presence of the King and cries, Holy, 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 because He has saved us from our sins, would you come forward? tonight, would you talk to myself or one of the shepherds about how that works and what you can do and what we can do to help you with that? We invite you, if you need to make your spiritual needs known publicly, would you do that by coming forward while we stand and sing this song?